and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Walter I. Gonsalves, Jr., an Assistant Federal Public Defender in the District of Arizona. We will discuss his article, Narrative, Culture, and Individuation, a Criminal Defense Lawyer's Race-Conscious Approach to Reduce Implicit Bias for Latinxes, which is published in the Seattle Journal for Social Justice. So welcome to the show, Walter. Hi. I'm so glad to have you on. Uh, This is a really interesting paper uh, and a really practical paper in a lot of ways. You make a lot of really helpful and thoughtful suggestions about how uh, criminal defense attorneys can better represent uh, their clients and in particular Latinx clients. Uh, But for listeners who might not be so familiar with implicit bias and the kind of literature on implicit bias. I wonder if you could give a little bit of background about sort of what implicit bias is and how it can affect uh, the criminal prosecution and sentencing process. Yeah, absolutely. So um, everybody has implicit biases. um, And and that's not just the criminal defense lawyer, but every one of us carries, uh, you know, within us uh, from a very young age, uh, certain associations that we make, um, you know, between many, many things. And it's not just race. Um, you know, it's, it could be someone's um, occupation, you know, their gender, uh, their sexual orientation. And um, it's essentially, uh, you know, we favor certain things above others. So, for example, you know, just um, in a, a non-criminal example, if you approach, you know, a, a bank teller and the person is overweight, you know, you may carry certain perceptions of that person, uh, you know, when you make a transaction, as opposed to if the person had less weight, uh, likewise, if you approached, uh, you know, um, uh, a bank teller who was African-American or Asian or uh, Latino or Latina, likewise, you would have certain associations, um, you know, of, of, of what that person, you know, is going to be like, what, you know, wh- how they may speak. Um, you know, if, if you see someone who is African-American, um, you know, walking down the street uh, in a dark alley, uh, as opposed to somebody who was an older white man, for example, you're going to carry some very different thoughts and perceptions about that person because we, because all of us carry these sort of hidden thoughts that we're not really aware of. Uh, that's why they're implicit. Um, and we develop them from a very early age. And the way that, that, that this, you know, that this sort of psychology that we all carry impacts prosecution um, is, I mean, there are many, many ways that, that you know, that um, it, it impacts the, uh, the course of um, a criminal defendant's case, um, you know, from arrest uh, to uh, the setting of bail, um, you know, to whether the person uh, is going to be released, you know, to many, many things in the case, um, whether the defense lawyer invests, you know, um, a certain amount of time on the case compared to other cases. I mean, there's a whole litany of things that are impacted by implicit biases. Uh, and so my paper, um, you know, it's, starts to sort of uh, begin a conversation um, uh, on, the, you know, how we can mitigate uh, the implicit biases towards clients that we see uh, very commonly in our district. Mm-hmm. Well, is it fair to say then that implicit biases, especially the sort of pernicious kind of implicit biases, are almost like unconscious stereotypes that affect our understandings and by extension the decisions that we made in ways that would we would avoid if we were aware of them, but because we're not aware of them, we can't avoid them? That's exactly right, Brian. And um, you know, one thing that that when, when I first came across the concept of implicit bias, um, you know, as a lawyer, it was when I attended a lecture that uh, in which um, there was a discussion about uh, police officers, you know. And so when a police officer has to make a very quick decision uh, about whether to pull the trigger or, you know, to um, show his weapon or her weapon, 
Um, you know, some of those decisions are very, very, you know, they're automatic. Um, and when someone is an African-American suspect, that decision tends to be made much quicker and uh, much more frequently compared to if the person was white or a female. Um, and so, yes, there, there are decisions that we make, um, especially when, when, we're, when we're in hurried situations um, that are almost automatic and that we don't really think about. And certainly those processes, um, you know, when, when, when a judge is making a decision about bail, when a judge is making a sentencing decision, you know, there are certain things that, um, that are automatic. However, there are some things that we can do as, as professionals to, um, you know, to not only raise awareness, but also to mitigate um, the, the, the impact of those biases um, in our practice. Mm. Well, so in the paper, you give a bunch of different examples of particular contexts in which implicit bias can affect the criminal prosecution uh, uh, process. I wonder if you could kind of highlight a couple specific examples and sort of explain how implicit bias can affect the decision-making process of, you know, not only defense attorneys, but prosecutors and, and judges as well, as a way of kind of illustrating for listeners sort of how this plays out in practice. Sure. Well, I think, I think the clearest example um, that comes to mind for me is, is sentencing. Um, you know, frequently in federal pre-sentence reports, um, the, the judge will see a picture of, of the defendants uh, included in the report before the sentencing. Um, and there's some fairly good research uh, that's been published showing that judges are impacted by implicit bias. And that when they, however, when they are aware of their biases, when they are made aware of the fact that they have a bias, um, they can make adjustments to their decisions. And so, for example, um, there's a, there's very good research that was done a few years ago. Um, and there was a federal judge um, and a social psychologist. Uh, Mark Bennett is a judge. And um, they published a study um, on f- federal judges. And um, the finding was that, that, there are that that if if they're aware of what's going on, if if they're aware of the biases, that they can do certain things, like for example, say you know uh, order the probation department to not include a photograph of the defendant in the PSR, which is a pre-sentence report. That's a way to perhaps um, you know reduce the impact of implicit bias. And so um, there's very good research showing that African Americans um, and uh, defendants of color are sentenced um, harsher. You know they're they're uh, penalized more. Uh, all things being equal um, compared to um, defendants who are white. Um, so that's one example that's very clear as, as that sentencing. Uh, there is a great study that was published a few years ago as well um, on how defense lawyers, uh, you know, when they negotiate a plea agreement with the prosecution, that, um, that they actually will um, obtain plea bargains, including more jail time for a minority defendant compared to um, a defendant who's not of color. And, and that to me was astounding. When I first came across that, I just couldn't believe that across the board, you know, all things being equal, criminal history, you know, the type of the offense, et cetera, et cetera, that, um, you know, that, that there is a difference between how, you know, how we treat different, um, different clients. So those are the two obvious examples. There, there are some studies that have been done also on bail. So for example, if you're a client of color, um, you know, all things being equal, um, you're more than likely to be um, you know, held uh, in custody uh, for trial compared to somebody who is um, who is white. And there's also um, a number of studies that show that it's not just skin color. I mean, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's not just race. So for example, uh, skin color and Afrocentric features, um, you know, are, are examples of things that, um, that will trigger, you know, a harsher treatment. So even if a defendant 
perhaps, um, you know, is is African-American, but has like less Afrocentric features uh, and and lighter skin tone, that, that that person will be treated differently compared to somebody who um, who has Afrocentric features and darker skin tone. Um, but we see this across all aspects of um, of the criminal justice process. Mm, yeah. Well, so I was really interested in that aspect of the early part of your paper, because, I mean, I think it's not uncommon for us to think that prosecutors and judges might be biased in some ways. But it was surprising and frankly troubling to think that that same kind of implicit bias might be affecting defense attorneys as well and the kind of representation that they're providing. So, I mean, I wonder if you have, if you have thoughts about techniques or tools that specifically defense attorneys can use to ensure that they avoid implicit bias to the extent that it's possible? Sure. Well, I think, you know, it, it all begins with the individual lawyer. Um, and so um, it's really to be aware of these biases. That the One of the best ways to do that is to take the implicit association test, which is available online. Um, and all you have to do is go on, you know, is uh, Google uh, implicit association test, um, and you can take the, the the test. It's on a Harvard University psychology website, and there are many different kinds of implicit bias tests. You know, as I said, we're talking about um, implicit biases about race, about ethnicity, about you know uh, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the there's been research showing that <clears throat> just the process of taking the implicit association test is a way to raise awareness, and because without really being aware that you have these biases and seeing your score. It's really hard to really, I think, understand it. And, um, and the, you know, the test only takes about 10 minutes. Um, you can take different ones. Each one will, will take about 10 minutes to do. So that's one strategy is for um, individual lawyers who are interested in this to just take the, 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 the test and take it more than one time. Because when I first took it, you know, I couldn't believe my score and I had to take it several times. And I still, you know, had these biases. Uh, and I'm someone who was actually studying these things um, and interested. And so um, that's one thing that, that the lawyer can do. The other thing that the attorney can do um, is to try to systematize the way that they spend their time on cases. So for, um, as opposed to not having any system of organizing you know, how they spend their time, perhaps um, they can uh, divide how much, you know, uh, how, how much time they'll spend on a case based on the custody status of, of, of the client, if, if, if the person is in custody or not, uh, you know, whether the person um, you know, has, a, has a trial coming up sooner rather than later. So you know, the age of the case um, perhaps, um, uh, there's a way to do it where you can, um, um, decide to spend time on a case based on the charge. So obviously if it's a murder case, you're going to spend more time on it, but just actually documenting, you know, how you're spending the time on the case, how much time you're spending on the case, um, that goes a long way because you're, you're making a mental note of, of why you're spending this time on the case. The problem with them, with, with, with these biases is, is that they exist. But they are more manifested. They're more. They're, they're stronger when we are in a hurry, when we don't take account of what we're doing, when we're not as mindful as we usually are. Um, certainly, reading the case studies. You know, there are many, many, many case studies. A lot of research that's been published over the years. Um, you know, just being aware of what's out there um, is, is 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 that awareness. Um, there are more specific things that that lawyers can do, such as, for example, um, when it comes to sentencing. Um, I think including you know, a, a citation or actually sending a study to a judge. Um, and, and I think really all aspects of, of, of trial practice, I think, can be impacted um, uh, by, by certain strategies to try to mitigate the, uh, the, the, the impact of these biases. 
Mm. Well, I mean, it sounds like information of this kind could be helpful both for defense attorneys in thinking about the way that they represent their own clients, but also to sort of alert judges and maybe even prosecutors to the potential for this kind of bias, which they would also want to avoid. Are there ways that attorneys can introduce that kind of information to the trial process? And are there kind of limitations or uh, difficulties that might be associated with introducing that information effectively? Well, that's that's a great question, Brian. And so um, it, it really depends on the judge. Um, you know, there's, there's a, as I mentioned, uh, Judge Mark Bennett, who's a senior judge in Northern Iowa, is really a pioneer in this, in this area. And he's published uh, several articles um, by himself and with other researchers about implicit bias. He actually does, um, he actually, from what I understand, puts on a PowerPoint presentation about implicit bias, um, you know, for every, every, every jury in, in every case that he has. Um, but, you know, so it really depends on the judge. I mean, some judges are really in tune with this and, um, and they'll agree to allow, um, you know, questions on voir dire, you know, about implicit bias. Um, you know, there are judges who I think are, um, are open-minded to having, um, you know, uh, experts testify at motions to suppress. Um, you know, clearly there are some areas uh, in the criminal law where race is, you know, very important. Um, certainly when it comes to eyewitness identification, you know, I mean, those are obvious. Um, but there are, but there are areas that I think are kind of, you know, ha- have been unexplored and, un, you know, sort of, um, you know, left unattended as far as, as bias. And I think sentencing is one of them. I think that um, fortunately, um, bias, you know, this, this research is becoming more popular and across the board, um, there are continuing legal education classes, you know, that are, um, you know, that are sort of becoming much more popular everywhere. So I'm really happy to see that, but, um, there are, there are still a lot of, um, obstacles, um, you know, unless you have a defense that relates to race, for example, I mean, unless your theory of the case has to do with a claim that your client perhaps was targeted because of his race or that the police planted evidence because of his or her race, it's going to be hard to have a judge, you know, um, a sort of, you know, uh, judge that hasn't, you know, that, 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 that's not really in tune with implicit bias to allow voir dire, for example, um, on implicit bias. Um, or, you know, if, if there's a motion to suppress evidence because of an unlawful search, um, you know, um, uh, introducing evidence that uh, the client perhaps was stopped because of his or her race. Um, I mean, the case law is terrible um, about this. You know, the Fourth Amendment case law, you, know, you really have to show that there was like explicit racism to get uh, the judge to even think about race. So it's really, really hard uh, in some of these scenarios. But, um, you know, I think voir dire is one that I think is a little bit, um, you know, more of an open area. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things too, in my experience, it seems like some prosecutors are, are don't want to object to this because they agree, you know, they agree that there are problems of race. Um, and I actually have a case going on right now where we um, uh, are proposing a number of voir dire questions on race and um, the prosecutor, I think, is, is, is thinking twice about making objections from what I understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like almost ironically that in the circumstances where implicit bias is most likely to be a problematic influence on the decision-making process are also the circumstances where it might be hardest to introduce relevant evidence of implicit bias. Absolutely. And I think especially um, with Fourth Amendment issues, um, you know, you have to really show that that, you know, that that the officer used the person's race. Um, And we all know that, um, you know, officers, you know, most officers are not racist officers, obviously, but all of them are implicitly biased. And um, it's it's very clear that in, in many, many situations, race is a factor 
But unfortunately, the case law doesn't allow us to introduce evidence of racism unless there is some, you know, some obvious um, racist um, facts in the case. Mm-hmm. Well, it seemed to me interesting as well that it's like we might think of implicit bias and the kind of racist assumptions associated with it as being limited to people who are not of that race. But it seems like it can actually extend across the board, even to people with sort of implicit biases against maybe members of their own race. That is true. And that is very problematic. In fact, I was just having a conversation yesterday with another attorney about how um, many Border Patrol agents, uh, you know, who we come across very frequently in our jurisdiction, you know, a lot of them are Hispanic. Um, a lot of them are Latino or Latinas. And, um, you know, they're arresting people that are also Latino or Latina. Um, and, you know, those biases are there. I mean, a lot of them are actually outward biases. You know, they're explicit biases. But unfortunately, um, you know, uh, even even African-American judges or Mexican-American judges do carry biases against their own race. Well, so in your paper, you focus specifically on how implicit bias can affect Latinx uh, defendants. I I wonder if you could talk about some of those biases in a kind of more specific, concrete way and sort of how those biases might be avoided. Sure. Well, um, I think one example that comes to mind is that we have a lot of drug cases. And, um, you know, inevitably... um, and unfortunately, a lot of our clients that are busted at the border, for example, you know, they're they're traveling into the country and they're carrying a load of narcotics in their car. They may not know exactly what's in the car, but they're carrying something illegal, um, you know, and usually it's a lot of drugs. Um, and there are actually a lot of people that are unwitting couriers, you know, so they're sort of set up by an organization to carry something and they don't know exactly what it is or they, they have no idea that there's anything in the car. And if you go to trial in those cases, um, you know, there are very sort of salient stereotypes of Latinos and Latinas, Latinxes, as being drug dealers. Um, And that goes way back into the early 20th century and and 19th century uh, when images in the media portrayed Mexicans as smoking marijuana. Um, You know, the media has, you know, if you watch movies, if you you just read any any popular, you know, stories that um, frequently a lot of drug dealers tend to be Mexican or Mexican-American or Latinos. And, um, and there are many, many reasons for that. And so that is one clear example of how um, I think as defense lawyers in this district, it's very important for us um, or in, in, in any district, right? I mean, I think this is a problem that's not just here. It's national that um, that making people in the system aware that these are stereotypes. A lot of them are, you know, they're ingrained in our minds. And so, the way to get rid of them is to expose people to this research and say, and say, look, you know, these are stereotypes that we have. Let's talk about them. There's nothing wrong with talking about them. We're here to educate each other. Um, and by doing that, having a conversation with jurors, having a conversation with judges about those issues, especially at trial. I mean, at trial is really when we see these things, because even when you have a case where somebody could be, you know, is innocent, um, the fact that they are accused of being a drug trafficker. And they're, you know, clearly Mexican, Mexican American, don't speak English, you know, they're using an interpreter. Um, it's inevitable that a juror is going to is going to have different impressions and different opinions of that of, of that person um, because that person is Latinx. And if, if that person was, you know, of, of a different race or ethnicity, um, you know, that association is less clear. Uh, and so we we must have those conversations. Well, so in the paper, you provide 
a bunch of like I think really helpful illustrations of particular circumstances in which these problems arose and suggestions about how they could be mitigated. I wonder if you could give a couple uh, of your favorite examples. Sure. Well, um, <clears throat> well, there's there's one client that our office represented a few years ago. I think he might be a current client. I, I'm not going to give his name away, obviously, but um, the the gentleman um, was accused of possessing ammunition. And um, he was at his mother's house. Uh, and what happened was that he was um, he was visiting his mother, who is it's pretty sick and I think has to use a cane. And unfortunately, the day of this of this of this event, it was it's called the Dia de los Muertos, uh, Day of the Dead. Um, the somebody called the police and they showed up and they somehow got consent to search the mother's house and the room where he was staying. They found. Uh, some shells in a drawer that he shared with his brother and they accused him of possession of, of this ammunition um, as a prohibited possessor because he had a, uh, a prior felony record. And uh, one way that the trial lawyer in our office, um, you know, used, you know, um, actually aspects of his culture to sort of individualize him and make him, you know, um, less of a caricature, if you will, in front of the jury was to talk about aspects of his culture. And so this, this was Dia de los Muertos. This was a very festive event. Um, and the defense in the case was that, you know, this, this ammunition, it was not actually his, it was his brother's and that, you know, um, he had nothing to do with it, but in, in telling that story, which ordinarily would be, you know, a common story, a common defense, you know, for any defendant to, 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 to use the defense lawyer made a conscious decision to use very detailed aspects of, um, of this ritual of, of having a feast. And so, um, there was testimony presented from his family about how he helped, you know, put on this, you know, this feast that he helped his mother who, who, who was sick. He was visiting for the day to help her. And so um, one way to reduce implicit bias is to try to get into aspects of, of someone's culture and, and, and to try to, you know, uh, place that person within a community, you know, that, that jurors can really see their humanity. And so we, we you know, we, we can reduce the impact of these stereotypes by humanizing our clients um, you know, by, you know, by giving them life, by talking about their culture. And, and, and this defendant happened to be a uh, Tohoto Odom, which is a, a, a tribe here in Arizona. Um, and, um, and, and so uh, Dia de los Muertos is celebrated not only by Mexicans in the Southwest, but also a lot of mem uh, uh, many members of the Tohoto Odom. Um, this same client was actually charged with another, um, another crime later. And it was a, uh, uh, a manslaughter case where he drove, he was driving a car intoxicated, allegedly. Uh, he, well, he pled guilty, so he was actually guilty. But um, his cousin uh, ended up dying uh, as a result of a car crash. And um, the case didn't go to trial, but the, the same defense lawyer, you know, really talked about how um, this, you know, again, focusing on culture, she used, you know, his Toro Orem um, culture to talk about how it's so important for them when someone passes away to, in, in some cases, build a um, sort of a, a shrine for them. And so he built a shrine. He um, he helped the his his aunt, you know, who was the uh, uh, deceased mother, um, because she was also very sick. And and so he, you know, sort of took over um, the client's role in, in in helping the mother, his aunt, and really spent a lot of time on this and spent about, almost a year like selling burritos in in street corners to save money for this, you know, for this shrine. And so she was able to incorporate aspects of his culture to really make him so, you know, just appear like a like a like a great human being in front of the judge. And he ended up, uh, uh, ended up getting a great result. So one of the ways to reduce implicit bias is not just to 
uh, educate the jury and the judge about it, but also to give examples of your culture, of, of the culture, and to be very specific with, you know, with, with individual characteristics of, of, of the life and story of that person. Yeah, I mean that's what you talk about in terms of individuation, as I as I took it, yeah. to really focus on not this client as a stereotype, but this client as a person, so that the jury, presumably, and maybe the judge and prosecutor as well, can sort of relate to them in terms of how they actually live their lives, as opposed to how they might kind of imagine in a stereotype way that they live their lives. Absolutely, yeah. And, and if I could just interject, I mean. You know, defense lawyers are, you know, should be taught and are taught to use stories, you know, in, in, in defending our clients. But stories are important, not just for the jury, but also for the judge. So if we can somehow use a story, but, but incorporate aspects of culture, um, you know, whenever we can to, you know, whatever we can do to humanize the person, um, you know, that, that's going to go a long way in, in reducing these biases. Mm. Well, so in, in in the paper, you also suggest a couple sort of holistic techniques, it seems like uh, defense attorneys can use, including like checklists for representation yeah. and the introduction of expert witness testimony to sort of help people, help juries and judges understand the kind of individual characteristics that seem to be so important. I wonder if you could touch on each of those briefly, because they seem like really effective techniques. Yeah. So, um, you know, using checklists, I mean, that's one, I think, very, very important thing to do. Um, the San Francisco public defender, um, uh, well, Jeff Adachi, who, who used to be the uh, defender up there who actually passed away last year, um, wrote a great article uh, in the Champion magazine about the use of checklists. And um, it's very clear that when, you know, we're all very busy, we have a lot of cases, but, and so one of the problems is that, unfortunately, we can't do everything for every client. I mean, that's just a given reality of being a criminal defense lawyer. You know, we try as hard as we can, but it's impossible to do every single thing for every single client that we have to do to be zealous advocates. And so by having a checklist, you know, um, for example, we, we, in our district, we handle a lot of drug cases, a lot of um, uh, 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 illegal entry cases. And fortunately, we've come up with, um, you know, really good outlines for what we need to do in each one of these cases as we're uh, reviewing the case and um, defending the client. And, I, and so having a process where uh, individual offices can formulate checklists for cases that they see a lot, you know, it's sort of like going to a doctor, um, you know, and, and going to surgery. I mean, it's I'm, I'm sure that hospitals have checklists and it should be no different for defense lawyers. So that's one way for us to make sure that we're doing everything we can. And everything we should do for every single client, irrespective of the client's ethnicity or race or gender and whatnot. Um, so that's one clear example. Um, the other, the other thing that I think I talked about in the paper um, was, um, you know, using the culture, using individuation, but also using counter narratives. So, um, you know, the counter narrative is sort of like, you know, um, or response to implicit bias. And, and what I mean by that is that. So judges carry narratives in their minds of, you know, like what a typical drug courier is going to look like. Right. So when you get the sentencing, you know, the judge sees, especially here in our district, you know, a lot of a lot of cases where a person is driving a car, you know, with like 40 kilos of or, you know, 100 pounds of, of cocaine and whatnot. And they and they and so they carry these stories about about about, um, uh, you know, about these clients who are Mexican, you know, who are involved in the cartel. You know, they may not have um, an idea of, of, of what they have in the car, but they clearly agreed to do this because of some uh, economic necessity. And so what we have to do is to use what's called a counter narrative 
to counter this, you know, the stereotype of the typical Latinx drug dealer. And we do that by, again, by developing stories, by trying to introduce, um, you know, as much detail as we can. So one example is having letters, you know, um, pictures, photographs, videos, anything we can do to humanize the client um, and portray him or her as a person that is more than just uh, somebody labeled um, a criminal defendant or, uh, you know, a Mexican drug dealer. Um, I think any of those things can be really, really useful. So, Walter, in closing, you, you spend a lot of time presenting different ways that defense attorneys can think about and mitigate implicit bias in their own practice and introduce that kind of evidence in the representation of clients. But it seems like judges and prosecutors also should be sort of worried about avoiding implicit bias because that's going to negatively impact the justice of the decisions that they make. I, I kind of wonder if you could reflect in a bigger picture sense. I mean, to the extent that judges and prosecutors can think about these problems too, I wonder if you have thoughts about what you think they could and should do uh, similar to those that you have about defense attorneys. Well, <clears throat> let me give you an example. So um, the Western District of Washington uh, spent, I want to say something like $56,000 or $50,000 <clears> on a video. And, and you can go on YouTube and watch this if you just um, click, you know, a uh, Western District of Washington and uh, uh, implicit bias video. So this video, I mean, this, this, this district spent a lot of money on a video in which there is um, the presiding judge, a prosecutor, uh, and um, an ACLU attorney talking about implicit biases. And, and, and they play this video for every juror in every case, civil and criminal. And so this is an example of what I think every district ought to do, right, is to invest some time, um, something, so that not just the judges, um, not just the defense lawyers, but that jurors are, are, are going to watch these things, right, and be aware of what's going on. And there's even been a push, um, or at least, you know, idea, uh, um, a, you know, some proposals to have jurors take the implicit association test before uh, a trial. Um, so I think that, you know, if, if, if I was a judge, you know, I mean, it's, there's very good research, you know, very good documentation that um, that these things exist and that judges are, you know, um, you know, they're making these decisions. I mean, they're ultimately responsible for the decisions that are made, uh, where people are held in custody pending trial, you know, and the kinds of sentences that they receive. So it is really, it's, it's really incumbent for, you know, for the judges who are aware of this to, to propose that all judges in their courtroom are, are aware of this and that they, and that they do something about it. I mean, we're very lucky that, um, that some districts, that some judges have made that step. Um, again, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, most prosecutors, you know, are, you know, they are good people, obviously, um, they're lawyers and, and, you know, they know the law and, you know, they, they want to see justice being done. I mean, they are ministers of justice. Um, and so what, you know, it's incumbent upon them when it comes to charging defendants, when it comes to making decisions about plea agreements, when it comes to making arguments for a specific sentence, that if they're not aware of their biases, uh, they may they may make recommendations that are um, you know worse for someone based on their race, even though they're not thinking about it. It happens, so um, it's incumbent upon I think everybody in the system to really make this um, you know a more just a more important 
point of focus on resources. And and we're lucky, I think, and fortunate that there is a movement now to educate everybody in the system, but it's 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 slow and um, we just have to work harder. Great. Well, Walter, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your your excellent paper. I mean, like I said, I really enjoyed reading it. It's got a lot of great practical suggestions that we only covered a few of, and I hope listeners will will check out the paper as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Regresan, regresan destrozados. Al norte de Corea, en Israel y en Palestina, los niños ya no juegan, ya no salen ni a la esquina. ¿Y qué me dicen del continente africano? Se están secando los ríos, ya no queda ni un pantano. Los pueblos se mueren de hambre, en pateras se van al mar. Pero muchos están ahogando, naufragan en alta mar. Y a todos los jefes de Estado les enviamos este urgente recado. Eduquen a sus pueblos para que mejoren sus sueldos. Que quiten todos los muros 
que se abran las fronteras, que podamos conocernos y cambiar nuestras ideas. Que cada quien le rece a su Diosito, ¿para qué pelearse si hay tantas religiones? Que cada quien elija sus devociones, respetemos y abramos los corazones. Que los muros de la mente son el peligro inminente. 